0: And now, with Sound Investing, here's Paul Merriman. I'm presently working on a project uh, to uh, videotape uh, some 20 to 25, 3 to 5 minute uh, pieces, uh, YouTube type pieces. Uh, and it's being done at Western Washington University. I'm very excited about this because uh, these Short pieces will be aimed at the first-time investor. Uh, My hope is that Western will figure some way to get these in front of virtually all students who are coming through the school there. It's a, a huge opportunity, and that means some big decisions on how this information is presented. There are times when I think the presenter should be another 20-something-year-old, somebody who kind of speaks and looks like the people we're trying to appeal to, but maybe they'll look uh, at an old guy as somebody who's got some wisdom and and uh, hopefully they will get the sense that I really care about their financial future. And I've decided the, the easiest and maybe the most effective way to be able to teach them is to break this investment process down to some very simple decision points so they're not overwhelmed by what could in theory be hundreds of important decisions, but only look at them one at a time. Because what's going to happen to them when they get into the investment world they're going to be faced with people who are going to be pulling them in their direction, uh, which is going to be one of these forks in the road, whether it's load versus no load, whether it's stocks versus bonds, whether it's individual securities versus mutual funds, mutual funds with high expenses versus mutual funds with low expenses. All of these choices that all lead to very, very different returns. Now, by boiling it down to the top 20 to 25 decisions, my hope is that they will legitimately have 99.9% of what they need to know in order to put money away into an IRA or a 401k for the rest of their life, and that by doing that, making the right decisions at each fork in the road, that they will be financially independent, Uh, even if they didn't come from a a family with lots of money. Maybe they'll start a family that has lots of money. And I think it is about those decisions. Now, I I was struck by this when I was reading a piece recently that uh, came to I think maybe it only came to advisors, but you can go on the Internet and you can certainly read this uh, uh, discussion. But the title is Strategies for Constructing Globally Diversified Portfolios. And there's a lot of good in the article, but there's a fork in the road that they come to in the article They don't tell you it's a fork in the road. They simply tell you what they believe. And this is one of the problems with the industry is that when somebody is telling you something that comes along, and let's call it a sales pitch, that's what it is, even from the wonderful people at Vanguard, there's going to be a sales pitch because they have a bias. But I'm not sure investors understand the impact of that bias. And let me give you an example here. And this is one of the biggest long-term forks in the road you'll ever come to, and they don't make any attempt to make the case for the other fork in the road. And while I'm not going to read uh, the entire uh, interview that went on, it's all very interesting, it's very informal, Uh, I'm going to read the part that talks about what they believe in terms of diversification. Let me read this quote. In practice, diversification is a rigorously tested application of common sense. Markets and asset classes will often behave differently from one another sometimes marginally, sometimes greatly, at any given time. Owning a portfolio with at least some exposure to many or all key market components ensures the investor of some participation in stronger areas while also mitigating the impact of weaker areas. And here's where it gets very, very meaty. Vanguard believes that investors should seek to gain exposure to these asset classes through a market cap weighted portfolio that matches the risk return profile of the asset class target through broad diversification. And then they make reference to figure 11, and it says figure 11 shows market cap weights by region for the global equity market as well as equity size and style weights. Now the casual reader of that is going to say this makes sense, that they're telling me what I need to know. But do investors really understand the implications of a market cap weighted portfolio that matches the risk return profile of the asset class target through broad diversification? It's this market cap weighted portfolio that people need to understand that the choice is between a market capped cap-weighted portfolio, or an asset class-weighted portfolio, and they make the case in this article that internationals should be part of this mix of asset classes, and whether you're in U.S. or you're in international, that it is going to be market cap-weighted. In other words, the, the portfolio is going to be overrun, highly, grossly overweighted to very, very large companies. Now, it's not bad that you have those large companies. It's not bad that you have international large companies as well as US large companies. And what I find interesting is that they look favorably at the addition of international securities to the U.S., but the reality is, historically, that the returns are very similar. If you look at the long-term returns of large-cap, talking now these big-cap-weighted portfolios, at U.S. and international, they're going to give a Decent return. I'm talking about over 50 years. The returns are virtually the same. Uh, But they would say that by adding, putting together the U.S. and the international, they don't all go up and down together. So by combining these cap-weighted portfolios, you do smooth the volatility a bit. It's not overwhelming because in a terrible bear market, they're probably both going to be hit hard. In fact, it's the currency rate that can have a huge uh, difference on returns from one year to the next, more, more than because of the success or failure of particular economies. But here's what's way, way more important in terms of return and really in terms of risk-adjusted return forget putting internationals into the portfolio if you simply wanted to do one thing in terms of diversification beyond these large cap weighted portfolio the biggest corporations, public corporations in America, if you wanted to do one thing, it wouldn't be to go overseas. It would be to add value and small cap to the portfolio. And if you chose to create a portfolio that was not cap-weighted, but asset-class-weighted, and you stuck to purely the U.S. markets, you would probably add, at almost the same risk, and this is looking at about 90 years' worth of data, you would add somewhere between 1% and 2% a year to your returns in the equity part of your portfolio. You are not going to add 1% or 2% to your returns if all you do is have the large-cap-weighted asset classes in the U.S. and the large-cap-weighted asset classes internationally. It is a giant step in terms of potential additional earnings. And yet Vanguard doesn't even give you that opportunity to understand that. Because if you did understand that, then I think a person would say, well, okay, uh, I'm going to put some small cap in the portfolio. Oh, yeah. By the way, you do get a little teeny tiny bit of, of small cap. And, of course, the great asset class is small cap value, and you get even less of that. But but the point is, yes, you do get some small, but small is so small it hardly even makes a budge in the return. You need to get more exposure. And the question might be, okay, but if I do that, what's going to happen to the losses during the worst of times? Well, I'm going to be doing a a. a podcast and probably a market watch article as well about things you should know regarding small cap value performance going beyond anything I've done in the past. And I think you'll see that having small cap value in the portfolio can actually boost your bad years considerably because they're part of the portfolio. I'll leave that for you to decide when you see all of the past history. So this big deal about, okay, add some internationals, it's, it's peanuts compared to a big deal being, now let's add some small cap and some value to this large cap growth portfolio that you've basically got. And it turns out you'll take a little bit more risk, but not much. And at the same time, for those of you who are in your 20s, you, really, you could be talking about having twice as much money to retire on just because you diversified not on a cap-weighted, but on a asset-class-weighted basis. And investors will never have a chance to get this process right if they aren't given the information and given in a way they can understand and comparing in a way that is fair to both. Now, you may say that I'm not being fair. I would understand that because I've made this strong case for asset weighting rather than market cap weighting. But let me be very clear. Market cap weighting means that you're going to end up with a whole bunch of really great companies. And you're going to think because you have great companies that you should have great returns. And what we need to understand is you'll probably get very fine returns, particularly good enough for people who have way more than they need. In hindsight, I guess I didn't need to have any money in small cap value. I didn't have to have any money in emerging markets. I simply made enough and put away enough that even without the special kick, the extra kick from uh, a value, small cap value, I would have been just fine. But there are a lot of you who the difference between retiring at 65 and 75 or having enough just to survive as you, the old, I want to. I want to die, you know, and I want my money to run out the day I die. Well, most of us would rather not be put in that position. At least that's my view. And I've sat with a lot of retirees who seem to agree. They'd like to leave something to others. Well, you do this equity asset allocation in in a smart way. I think you will leave a lot of money to others. So, yes, it's true. A market cap weighted portfolio is a very fine way to invest. In fact, what you could do, you could say, well, Paul, is there any way I could have that additional return but still have what I feel gives me more comfort, and that is these large U.S. companies? And if I have to go international, these large international companies. Is there another way to end up with more than I need? And it's simple. Save more. Invest more. Stay committed to equities later and later in your life. And I don't mean that you don't put some fixed income in there, but add the fixed income slowly so that you get the advantage of the many more years of getting equity returns. So trade off. Trade off more saving for the right to invest in a cap-weighted portfolio and have more than you need. That's what I think you should do. Or, by the way, retire with less. I spend a, a good part of the year in Mexico where a lot of Americans go to live year-round. And they're doing just fine on Social Security after they own a house down there. They'll sell their house in the U.S., get you a wonderful house in, in Mexico, and Social Security covers all the bills. And if you got a little pension along the way or a few additional bucks, ah, that's gravy. You can do it. But most of us, if we could invest intelligently, by the way, intelligently is always looking backwards. I cannot be intelligent about the future. I can only be reflect on the past with any real knowledge. So that's my first topic for the day. And I've got an, another topic I would... Uh, Uh, I would like to cover. I get a lot of questions about market timing. Uh, In fact, I get a lot of questions about not only market timing, but other kinds of investments that uh, uh, they might, uh, let's call them alternative investments. Market timing, I'm sure, would be called an alternative way to invest. Um, um, Also, uh, things like hedge funds are alternative ways to invest. In fact, uh, one, uh, 10% of my portfolio is in a hedge fund that uses market timing. So I have two alternative things going on at one time. And as you know, private equity and venture capital investment, uh, um, that is a, uh, another way. And people will ask me whether these kinds of alternative strategies that very often wealthy people are able to take advantage of. Now here again, you're not given the facts, folks. You're not given the information in the fork in the road. Most companies that uh, are in, for example, the, the people who were in the private equity market. There's actually a, a 2016 paper entitled How Do Private Equity Investments Perform Compared to Public Equity? And the public equity that they're being compared to is the S&P 500. And it turns out, and in these particular Returns go back to 1984, and uh, there were some uh, 24 venture capital funds in their database that began operations in 1984. The median lifetime total return was 6.3%, and that's based on an annualized compound rate of return. The average return was 7.3. Now let's just remember, average can be very misleading. Remember, if you start with a dollar and you make 50%, it goes up to a dollar and a half. And if you lose 50% the following year, it goes back down to 75 cents. So the average return on those two years, up 50 and down 50, is actually 0 but the compound rate of return is of a loss between 12 and 13% a year. You got it? So average can be very misleading. That's why when some people will tell you the S&P 500 has an average return of 12%, you may get all... lightheaded and and excited about the potential of a long-term 12% compound rate of return. No, the long-term compound rate of return is 10 approximately. And again, it's because the way that uh, losses are, are in a sense, misrepresented when you look at an average. So, uh, I can ignore that 7.3 and look at the 6.3, which by the way, is way below what the S&P 500 has done over that period of time. For what it's worth, the S&P 500 compounded from 84 to 2016 at 10.9. And for those that like the total market index better, uh, 10.8. And I know there's somebody out there wanting to know, yeah, but what about small cap value? Well, according to the database from Dimensional Funds, that's 14.2. And I could go through all the different asset classes, but let me tell you, they all did a lot better than, uh, than, than the, these private equity portfolios. Now, having said that, the study does go on to show that there are periods that their returns were phenomenal, But let's remember something. When you give up liquidity, and you do give up liquidity when you go into a private equity fund, doesn't mean you can't eventually get out. But when all the bad things are happening, you probably can't get out, or if you do get out, you're going to get out at a terrible, terrible price. So that return of the private equity portfolios That was less than the S and P five hundred, and and by the way, less than half of the return of small cap value. That came at a lot more risk, and we should never take a risk. Remember that one lesson that I think is the most important: never accept a risk that you don't accept to get a premium. Expect to get a premium. And let's not forget something very important about investing. Investors typically get all hot and bothered about investments right after they've had a huge run. I talked recently about after the run of 1995 to 1999, people could not get money into the S&P 500 fast enough only to walk right into a 10-year period that actually created a one approximately one percent a year loss for a decade. And uh, And of course, that must have been a big surprise because at the beginning of that decade, when surveyed, people were expecting to get a return of somewhere between 20 and 30 percent a year. And as long as I'm talking about alternative investments, uh, let me spend a few minutes talking about market timing. I still get a lot of emails, people asking me to talk about market timing. A lot of them are about uh, questioning my, my uh, uh, sanity, as everybody knows that market timing doesn't work. I mean, that's what we're all taught. There's another fork in the road. People just uh, who, who believe in buy and hold automatically say market timing doesn't work. Um, and by the way, there are people who believe in CDs and say investing in the stock market doesn't work. So uh, you, you can find uh, uh, supporters of any strategy. But I've been around market timing since the early 80s. I actually started along, my firm started, um, and this goes back to the days when I was running it, in 1995, started a, a, uh, a hedge fund. And um, very much unlike what something like a private equity portfolio would be, in that uh, market timing, all it depends on, at least the way I believe in market timing, uh, mechanical trend-following systems, you never know from one year to the next how you're going to do. Uh, in, in, in fact, um, when I go clear back to 1987, a year that market timing aggressively combining market timing and uh, uh, and leverage, uh, not much leverage but but some. Uh, produced, according to the Hulbert Financial Digest, they were tracking us, my newsletter, uh, over 50% profit in 1987. That would not even start to tell you anything about 1988. There is no single year that will tell you anything about the following year because, number one, we never know what the market's going to do, and even if we knew what the end result might be, you don't know the pattern it went through to get there. So when you use trend-following systems, you're going to sometimes be whipsawed in what would be an otherwise decent year in the market if you only looked at it from the beginning to the end. And let me just show you giving the actual, after the expenses, not after taxes, but after the expenses, give you a sense of the volatility of timing. Now remember, this is a strategy that combines equities, it even uses some fixed income as well, uh, and leverage, plus, of course, the timing. The idea being that when the market's doing well, beef up the returns with some leverage, but when the market goes south, protect from the catastrophic on the way down. Now that's the theory, and there's nobody that can say they can guarantee that will happen. But I can tell you that uh, there are years in here, like uh, 2009, uh, the, the fund was up 68%. Point six percent And that's after the percentage of the profits that went to the hedge fund. That year, the S&P 500 was up 26.5. The Russell, 27.2. And the EFA, the International uh, Major Index, was up uh, 31.8. Now, what did that tell you about the next year? <laughs> well, not much, because the uh, Excuse me, that was 2009. The year before, I'm sorry, the year before in 2008, it was down 24. So that's what happened before the gain of 68.6. And following the gain of 68.6 was a gain of 9.9. And following the gain of 9.9 was a loss of 13.3. In 2003, up 65.7. Um, in uh, in 19, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, 1999, up 53. Now it had all these uh, many great years. It also had five losing years. The worst l- losing year was a loss of 24. Of course, that was a year that the market lost 37. So here's what we know about timing: it ain't gonna look like buy and hold. And what you hope timing will do is that it will protect against the downside, but you should not expect it to protect against all the downside. What is interesting, since the inception of that fund right through the end of June of this year, uh, it's up 1680 The S&P, and this includes reinvestment of dividends, up 661. The Russell 2000, 645. And the EFA International Index, up about 217. So do you have any problem understanding why I believe in timing? But I don't believe you should have all your money aggressive like this. Just like I don't think you should have it all in the S&P 500 or all in small cap value. And um, my hope is that every one of these important forks that you might come to in your investment career, that you will consider the alternatives. And by the way, before you leave this this Podcast, thinking that I'm a big advocate of timing for you, absolutely not. Maybe one out of a hundred people can take the uh, the unusual. And in fact, when I say unusual, one would not expect this strategy to go up and down with the S and P 500. What they call the R squared which would indicate how much like the S&P 500 that this hedge fund is, the R-squared for the S&P is 4042. The R-squared for the Russell 2000 is 50.50, and for the EFA, 0.52. So it is very, very different. And isn't that what we're looking for in asset classes? And before I leave that thought, what just popped into my mind is the big sales pitch. The big sales pitch for commodities in a portfolio is because they don't go up and down with the S&P 500. Well, over the long term, Yeah, it's true they don't go up and down with the S&P 500, but if you looked at their actual growth over a long period of time, and let's just look at the last 20 years through 2016, the commodity index it went up. Yes, it made a profit one half of 1% a year. So the commodity industry brags about how it doesn't go up and down, but you still even though if it doesn't go up and down with the stock market, you're, you're looking for something that still has the potential of a long term trend to the upside. And during that same period of time, uh, T bills, 30 day T bills, compounded at better than 2%, and long term government bonds compounded at over 7%. And yes, T-bills and long-term government bonds do not go up and down with the market, just like commodities don't go up and down with the market. But it's your choice, and you should know those choices when you're putting together a portfolio. And remember, and you have to have to make sure. You now, pin me to the wall. Am I, am I giving you the other choice when I'm recommending something? Well, I hope so. But remember, whatever the industry has to sell, whatever will put money in their pocket, what you're likely to hear is the reason to do what they're trying to get you to do and not give you a fair understanding of what that fork in the decision path could be. So my hope is, when I'm done with this series of three- to five-minute pieces decisions choices that people young people can make as they get started with their with their investing that you will make sure that those videos get in the hands of those young people and by the way when i put those out i'm going to give you links to other places that if you never went to mine that I believe would give these young people the information they need. I'm not the only one that knows what they need, but I'm going to help you find the other resources so that we hopefully will find something that kind of catches their imagination. For some, it might be cartoons. For others, it may be a, a, a young person. Maybe it needs to be a superstar musician. I don't know, but if the information is good, then my job is to bring it to you so you can bring it to them. They're not going to find me, but hopefully you will help them find our work. Thank you for listening, and uh, keep those questions coming. There's a pile of them, and I'll get to them as I can. Thank you.